Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for the 500th episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. What a special day. Thanks so much for joining us for this whole journey. Wow. Uh, What uh, a way we've come from episode zero to 500. It's been a thrill. Things have grown faster than I expected. And I'm just delighted to know that over 8 million times, you have turned to the show for some inspiration. So that's huge. If you're wondering Am I going to do anything special for the 500th episode? The answer is yes. Yes, indeed. A couple things. Thing one, I am going to spend 500 minutes in one-on-one conversations with you, listener. So if you go to awesomeatyourjob.com slash five, that's the number five, awesomeatyourjob.com slash five, we can schedule five minutes to chat on the phone and I will chat with 100 people times five minutes equals 500 minutes. So that'd be fun. You can tell me what you like about the show, what you'd like to see different. You can just say, Hey, Pete, what's up? I think it's fun to talk to you. We could talk about whatever. Maybe something's on your mind right now with work or there's something you'd like to see. Anything goes. It'd just be fun to have a little chat, get acquainted. That's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash five. The other special way we're celebrating is with a super special guest. Now, this person has provided some extraordinary mentorship for me and helped me learn and grow and think and make better stuff that you can dig. So he also happens to have some awesome content that's super applicable to an issue that's come up again and again that I've heard from you. So it's a exciting win-win. Episode 100 was with my uncle, Topper Steinman, who was an inspiration. And this one is likewise an inspiration for me. And I sure hope so, an inspiration for you as well. We're talking to Victor Chang about how to build unshakable self-esteem and confidence. You'll learn one, the foundational mindset that yields self-esteem. Two, the three skills for developing healthy self-esteem. And three, how to recover from those confidence-shaking setbacks. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, they're at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep500. I also recommend you check out caseinterview.com com slash awesome in which victor is giving away a cool free guide with five steps to building self-esteem so that's at caseinterview.com slash awesome now here's victor's story victor cheng is the founder of caseinterview.com which is the most prominent blog on the management consulting industry he also serves as a strategic advisor to inc 500 ceos and has been featured as a business expert in media such as fox business tv network msnbc time the wall street journal and forbes Victor is a former McKinsey & Company consultant and has been a senior executive in several publicly owned technology companies. He's a graduate of Stanford University with a degree in quantitative economics and the author of several business books. Now, here's Victor. Victor, thanks so much for joining us on the 500th episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks, Pete. So I appreciate that. An honor to be the final episode. Oh, yes. Well, I'm delighted to have you. And in a way, you know, I really think of you. I don't know if you know this, Victor, but your voice is inside my head <laughs> almost every workday as I think about how to make epic content and, and build audience. And, and you're sort of like my maybe my content conscience, the little voice in my head who won't let me get away with publishing suboptimal stuff. So I think all the listeners can thank you for that. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, so I think one of my favorite tidbits along those lines was we were making a program together for interns and I had something about, hey, have enough uh, clothes ready so that you don't have to do laundry for two weeks. And you said, Pete, this is not sufficient. I need to hear how many blue dress shirts, how many white dress shirts. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yes, sir. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's really stuck with me is like, okay, am I thinking about this from a have two weeks of clothes or am I thinking about this from a, these are the particular garments that you need. It, it makes all the difference. Yeah, no, I think I, I always like to have, when I help people, I try to be as action oriented as possible. I noticed some of the you know, sort of the preparation you sent over for our talk today was around be actionable as you can. And I strive to do that and, and uh, as best I can. It sounds like you do too. Oh, thank you. Yes. Well, so let's talk a little bit. You and your team at caseinterview.com, you serve another audience of professionals who like to achieve and more and do better. Can you orient us? What's this brand all about? Yeah, so the case interview term refers to a kind of interview that's very widely used in the management consulting industry. And I help people who aspire to enter that industry with that interview process, which is very different than other industries. And so most of my audience are people who at one point in their careers were very interested in that interview process. And most of my readers are either have worked in consulting, used to work in consulting, tried to work in consulting, but went in a different direction. And the one thing they have in common, and which I think they share with your audience, is they really want to be awesome at their jobs. And so that's uh, kind of the tie-in between the two of us. And you're also really great at zeroing in on what do folks really want and need to learn, and then building that for them. And so I understand you and your team, you're, you're kind of surprised when you discovered this need for developing self-confidence and self-esteem. How did that come about? Yeah, the, the short answer is listening and paying attention. You know, so I noticed that we would try to help people be successful in their careers in this particular industry. The industry is you know, very difficult to get into, maybe like a less than 1% acceptance rate. So uh, there are a lot of people who strive to get in but can't. And a lot of them will contact me and say, you know, I just feel so down and out. You know, I went very far in the interview process, but I didn't get a job offer that I wanted, or I got a second tier offer. And so you find these people who are, in many cases, with Ivy League degrees, sometimes multiple Ivy League degrees, like feeling they're kind of worthless when they've accomplished almost everything except kind of this one or two things that were really important to them. And so what I realize that there's a kind of a gap between kind of their achievements and how they feel about themselves and started noticing, hey, there's a self-esteem problem I see sort of quite often within my audience and started to help them with that issue. Well, now that's fascinating right there in terms of, you said, multiple Ivy League degrees and, and all kinds of credentials and achievements, and yet that that's sort of not enough. They're not experiencing or feeling the, the self-esteem, the self-confidence. What do you suppose is underneath that? Well, one of the things I like to distinguish between is the concept of self-esteem versus other esteem. And esteem really is how one feels about oneself and how one feels about oneself can either come internally, right? And that would be self-esteem or it can come from external sources. So when someone is feeling really rotten about themselves because something outside of them has occurred, they didn't get into the school they wanted to, they didn't get the job offer, you know, there was a recession, they're not, their net worth took a big hit, stock market went down, they didn't get a promotion, whatever that might be. And that is what I call other-based esteem. And that is when you tie your identity and sense of self-worth to things outside of your control in your environment that aren't always your decision. 
Yeah, well, so I think that that's that's common, and I, I would certainly prefer to have my esteem coming from myself as opposed to the fluctuating whims of of the economy or other people's opinions. So, boy, how do you how do you pull that off in terms of building that internal fortress of, of self esteem? Well, it really starts with the mindset and the mentality. I, I think sort of two schools of thought or two ways of looking at the world and human worth, right? So one is what I call the newborn baby approach, which is when a new child is born, like everyone looks at the baby and goes, oh, like they're so amazing. They're so precious. They're like perfect in every way possible, even though, you know, probably they aren't uh, in an objective sense, but that they have inherent worth, right? They're amazing purely because they exist. You know, they haven't gotten into Harvard yet. <laughs> you know, they haven't had major achievements. They haven't done many, many things in life because they're literally just existing. And so that idea of inherent worth, I, I like a lot and is very much associated with healthy self-esteem. The other approach, as we mentioned and alluded to earlier, was we tie your identity to outside achievements. So one of the important things with developing self-esteem is to accept the premise of self-based esteem and the premise of good, healthy self-esteem is this concept of inherent worth that you and I, we're worthy human beings solely because we are human beings and for no other reason. So you have to really, as a starting point, buy into that belief. And anytime your one's actions or instinctive impulses of, you know, beating oneself up for, you know, some kind of perceived failure, you have to remind yourself, I'm worthy simply because I exist. So that mindset uh, is an important starting point uh, to kick off that process. Um, and then the rest of the process really involves a lot of self-acceptance. When you have uh, externally oriented esteem, your esteem will fluctuate based on kind of the whims and volatility of the external world. And what a lot of people do when they have um, the external environment changes for the negative, they feel worse about themselves, right? And they either beat themselves up, feel ashamed, embarrassed, or irritated at themselves or shaming themselves. That is a symptom or a sign of a lack of self-acceptance, right? So when the world changes, when your life changes, when you make a mistake, healthy self-esteem people will say, you know, I still care about myself. I still value myself. Uh, I still love myself. I may choose to do things differently going forward based on you know, mistakes and lessons I've learned. But as a human being, my worth does not fluctuate based on my achievements or how the external world perceives me. Oh, there is so much really good stuff here. And and these are some really, I guess, profound philosophical nuggets in terms of, I think about many religions and wisdom traditions would talk about the intrinsic dignity of, of a human being, whether it's from Christianity, you know, humans being made in the image and likeness of God, or from a secular perspective, like the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. And so, I mean, I'm with you, I, I'm bought into that. But if folks aren't, do you have any kind of support pillars or evidence or, or how do you persuade them to make the leap? Well, I think it comes for twofold. One is the, the choice, making that choice consciously. And then the second part is there are certain sets of behaviors and habits and practices that help reinforce that. And so, you know, I don't have a, you know, a, a magic pill, if you would, on how to get someone to sort of buy into that idea. It really is deciding that's the way you want to live your life. After that, it's making a lot of habitual choices and habit changes, which I'd love to talk about in terms of reinforcing that. But really, it comes down to a choice because you either say, hey, I'm going to live that way or not. And then if you decide to live that way, then it's getting better at the habits around that. All right. Well, what are some of those habits that go a long way in terms of reinforcing that? So once you believe that sort of philosophy in life, if you would, 
and you've come to realize and recognize the importance of self-acceptance, there are three other skills that are really important to developing healthy self-esteem. And those are what I call individuation, boundaries, and self-care. So let me explain what each of those are because they're kind of, you know, those terms come from the psychology world, so not everyone may be familiar with it. But individuation is a huge one. I think this is where a lot of people, myself included, have had difficulty in making the transition from other base esteem to self-esteem. And individuation basically says, I am comfortable with myself, with my thoughts and my feelings and my identity. And my thoughts, feelings, and identity will not be altered based on your thoughts, your feelings, and your identity. So for example, do you have a favorite sport, Pete? Or favorite team? Well, <laughs> I don't follow sports much, but one of my favorite sports to participate in it would be swimming or weightlifting. Got it. Okay. So Michael Phelps, great, you know, great swimmer. Most of us have heard of him. You and I could, you know, you could argue Michael Phelps is the greatest swimmer of all time. I could argue something completely different. The ability to have what's called good individuation is where I can feel confident in my decision on who I think the greatest swimmer of all time is. You can feel confident in yours, and we can both acknowledge that we have a difference of opinion on that. Right? Mm -hmm. So what you'll find is some people with very low self-esteem and no self-esteem cannot agree to disagree. Right. Oh, interesting. They have difficulty agreeing to disagree. And what ends up happening is when you see two people with low self-esteem who lack this skill, the arguments never end because they're trying to convince the other person they are right. So a simple example is my favorite flavor of ice cream is vanilla. Yours might be chocolate. We could argue who's right, but what this really is is a conflict of opinion. You have your opinion for what you feel is the best flavor of ice cream. I have mine. And we could, if we were sort of two healthy people with great self-esteem, because, oh, great, you like chocolate, I like vanilla, we agree to disagree, end of conversation, right? And if you watch most sitcoms, most movies, a lot of marriages, you'll find people just argue forever. And the reality is there is no right, particularly when it's a subjective subject, there is no right answer, right? And it's really what you decide for yourself. So people with good individuation won't get riled up or triggered or irritated or sucked into social media debates about something that's basically an opinion. And so that's one part of, of healthy individuation is you can separate the validity of your thoughts around your ideas from other people's opinions about your ideas. And I suppose maybe, and this could be a wholly different concept, but, but I'm guessing that if you're, if you're strong and healthy there, then you can also be okay discovering that you're wrong and adopting a new belief like, well, well, holy smokes, Victor, you, you've brought up some excellent points about Michael Phelps that I was not previously aware of. I'm going to chew on this and I, and I may choose to adopt your position, but that doesn't mean that I am a loser or a moron for, for having previously held a prior position. That's right. And so people with healthy self-esteem and self-based esteem are able to hear feedback without getting defensive, right? Because mm -hmm. either your feedback is totally wrong or actually there's some merit there and I can consider it, but regardless of whether I accept it or reject your feedback, in no way is your feedback going to impact my sense of identity and worth because I'm pretty secure on my identity and worth. And so that's why there's a huge advantage of being awesome in your career when you have good, healthy self-esteem because you can listen to feedback without getting defensive. And if you look at some notable figures and sort of, you know, in the news these days, some very high profile people cannot take criticism. They cannot admit when they're wrong and they can't take feedback. They can't apologize. 
Uh, they double and triple down, you know, on a position, uh, even when all objective data uh, and feedback says they're wrong. And, you know, that can oftentimes be a sign of someone who is uncomfortable being wrong because they tie being wrong to a sense of, of poor identity. And so that can be a very uh, difficult situation to navigate. But yeah, I think there was a famous scientist, and maybe you'll know this, but it was a quote I thought was awesome. It went something like, there were two scientists, they were having a bit of a, a disagreement over time about a theory of sorts. And then one scientist got some great experimental data, and then the other scientist said, hey, all right, looks like looks like the theory is right. And then the person who changed his view got criticized by the prevailing scientist, but then the, the changing scientist said, well, when, when new evidence suggests that my prior beliefs were incorrect, I changed my beliefs. What, sir, do you do? <laughs> Zing! <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'd look that up. Uh, so, okay, so that's individuation. And we also got boundaries and self-care. Yeah. So boundaries would be setting rules for yourself to protect from people who have sort of, you know, toxic behaviors. So one example is like name-calling. Name-calling is very, very damaging on esteem. If you call yourself a name, like I'm such a loser, you do that a thousand times in your life or 10,000 times, a hundred thousand times, it's going to have an impact, right? So name-calling and avoiding is super important to protecting your esteem. So one rule is I will never call myself a name, right? And if I do, I will call timeout and find a different way to express my frustration. That's an example of an internal boundary, a rule that I govern my own behavior. Uh, Another one is around governing what situations I am willing to allow myself to be in. So for example, for me, if I am in a situation where someone doesn't engage us in sort of very toxic name calling of me, I have a rule that I will remove myself from that situation. So if it is one of my kids and they're getting really volatile, I will call timeout for myself. I will leave that room. I'll let my kids know, you know, when you're ready to have this conversation in a respectful way, I'm willing to continue and let me know when you've calmed down. Uh, if it is a client that does that, which you know, does not last very long, uh, I, I say the same thing or eventually I fire them fairly quickly uh, because I don't want to be around people who try to bring me down because it is not healthy behavior and not good for me. So boundaries are, are, are a set of rules, kind of if-then statements, if you would, that ensures that you're going to be safe and your esteem is going to be protected. It's a form of self-defense in a, in a healthy, productive way. And the way you define a boundary is if this scenario happens, then I'm going to do this. You know, if I catch myself calling myself a name, then I'm going to immediately stop and try to find some other way to address that feeling. So it's an if-then rule that you decide in advance as you discover the kinds of situations where you really feel very bad, like you don't want that situation to repeat. You create a new boundary rule for yourself as a way to continually get you safer and safer and protecting your sense of worth. So name-calling, that's a great area to put some boundaries around. Any other top boundaries you recommend? Yeah, another one would be lack of acceptance of differences. So for example, you know, we got in this debate of, you know, ice cream versus, you know, vanilla ice cream versus chocolate. A healthy version of that conversation would be, oh, you know, I see, you know, Pete, you like chocolate. I like vanilla. What do you know? We're different. Okay, that's great. And I can affirm and validate that I can see clearly, Pete, you like chocolate ice cream, right? And I don't have to feel the pressure to try to change your mind. I don't have to like shame you or saying only losers think chocolate ice cream is like, you got to be kidding me. That's so 1990s. Right? I don't have to do any of that putting you down, right? So one form of boundary is to look for people who can receive your ideas and not try to tell you your ideas are wrong. They might share additional information. They might try to persuade you, 
but they don't make you try to feel bad just for having an opinion. Um, another variation of that that's even more important is feelings. Uh, when you have a feeling, a feeling is always valid, right? A feeling is really a personal experience on how you're experiencing a situation. So for example, if you go to a funeral and, and maybe you didn't know that person very well because you maybe, you know, you were with somebody, a significant other, and they knew the person really well and you're very sad right? Because you just felt sad at the funeral. You know, someone who says, why did you feel sad? You didn't even know him, right? Like, that's so lame, right? <laughs> that would be an example of someone who is encroaching on your right to have your own emotional experience about the situations you encounter. And it's neither right or wrong, but all emotions have their own experiential validity that can be acknowledged, right? And so it's a healthy behavior to be able to acknowledge your own feelings and to be around people who are able to acknowledge your feelings, even though they don't necessarily agree with them. And, and that's a form of respect that's important. Well, and not to buddy the waters mm -hmm. too much here, but I, I'd love it if we could maybe make this even more difficult with regard to... So sometimes we, we have opinions about things that uh, maybe they are perceived as right and wrong, have big consequences. So let's just say that there's someone who's vegan Mm -hmm. And they believe, you know, that meat is murder mm -hmm. and that the cows and all of the resources to tend to them are terrible for the earth and the greenhouse gas, greenhouse gases and CO2 and climate change and, and, and meat is just, just bad news. And then someone else is uh, an enthusiastic, you know, beef eater mm -hmm. uh, who's, who's into that. So now these folks need to coexist and yep. uh, they have strong feelings. So does that change the game? at all? Or, or how do you think about those situations? Uh, it depends on the context of the disagreement. You know, if it is in general, is veganism right or wrong? Is eating meat right or wrong? That's one kind of conversation. And the other would be more like, you know, policy chain, legislate, you know, make changing laws that govern society because laws impact all of us. And, and therefore, you know, we need to settle that dispute. But if it's a matter of personal choice, you know, healthy relating or healthy interaction is, you know, you know, I, I see like you're, you, you feel very strongly about being vegan, right? And I respect that choice that you make for yourself. Uh, it's not the choice I'm comfortable making for myself. And I can see that we're different, but I totally honor and respect that that's what you've chosen for your life. And you might say, Hey, Victor, you know, there's some new information that you might not be aware of. Would you be open to hearing some reasons why you, you, Victor, might want to consider eating less meat or even converting to veganism? And I would say, Either yes, I'm open to hearing about it, or no, I'm not, right? All right. If I say no, I'm not, and you push it anyway, then you're crossing a boundary, right? You're trying to control my personal life choices. This is my body. I control what I do with my body, and you're encroaching on that limit. If I invite you, say, so, you know, I, I've heard a lot about it. I've seen some documentaries. I've seen some companies that are trying to make money in that market. Yeah, I'm curious, like, like you know, what have you seen? Like, what's why are you vegan? You know, what... Is it environmental? Is it philosophical? Is it moral? Uh, I'd be curious to learn more. So if I give you an invitation and you accept that, then you can fully discuss that. So it is recognizing when a choice is yours to make, uh, when it is somebody else's to make, or uh, if it is something that we are in it together. So for example, if we got a coupon to go buy ice cream and we can only get like one pint of ice cream, we got to choose vanilla or chocolate. And then we have a decision to make that's a joint decision. You know, and we can agree that you like chocolate, that I like vanilla. You think chocolate is the best in the world. I think vanilla is the best in the world. That's fine. We agree to disagree on our, on our opinions on that, but we still have to make a resource allocation decision because we can only get one. Uh, and that becomes a problem solving exercise of, well, 
How do we solve that problem? So again, it depends on whether this is a judgment of somebody's personal choice or is some kind of joint decision or social decision or team decision or in a couple, you know, a marital decision that impacts both people. And so that's, that's kind of the distinction between those two. All right. Thank you. And now let's hear about self-care. So self-care is recognizing that in many ways you have to take care of yourself because you can't always rely on somebody else to do it for you. And I think healthy relating is about taking responsibility for your own health, uh, physically and mentally, and to look out for yourself. And I think uh, healthy relating is when two people, if we're talking about a romantic context, you know, two people in a couple, they're monitoring themselves, they're figuring out what they need. They are requesting help, you know, from their partner uh, when that help is needed. And, but it is their own responsibility to look out for themselves and to ask for help when they need it. I think things get problematic when people sort of assume somebody else is going to take care of them for you, uh, particularly if you just assume it, but don't actually ask or have them consent to it or form some kind of agreement. And so I think good maintenance and support of uh, self-esteem involves taking care of yourself. So a simple example, it is very hard to have high self-esteem if, for example, you lack the ability to provide for yourself financially, right? And so if you're in a, an abusive relationship, uh, whether that be like a marital one or working for a, a terrible boss, if you are dependent on that other person for your financial resources and they put you down, for example, it's very hard to walk away because you have a form of dependence on them that makes it very hard to assert your boundaries and to keep yourself emotionally safe. So if you have your own ability to earn your own living, you have uh, you know, a resume that is strong, and you have the ability to go get other jobs if you need to, then it becomes easier to say when someone steps across the line to say, hey, you know, that wasn't cool of me. I'd like you to stop doing that, right? And if it happens repeatedly, then I need to reevaluate whether I can be in this form of relationship with you or not. And that gives you a lot of power to take care of your needs when you have the ability and means to take care of yourself. So, so when you say self-care, mm-hmm. uh, I was originally envisioning, you know, meditation and massage and sleep, but you, you're thinking about just actually having the, the means to care for yourself. Yeah. And, and the very, and that's certainly included in that, but it is a very broad sense. So medical health, dental, like the basics of life, you know, it is very hard to feel good about yourself if you feel ill, <laughs> right? And so those two go together. So all those skills become a form of, of esteem. So, I mean, think about the opposite, you know, think about, uh, you know, sort of the stereotype of, you know, the man child, right? Usually male, maybe in the twenties, 30 years of age, and they just can't take care of themselves at all, right? They aren't able to feed themselves. They can't do their own laundry. They have difficulty paying bills and they feel bad about themselves, right? And so even though they have inherent worth, they feel bad because like, well, I have to rely on everyone else around me to do anything. And so it's very hard to feel that sense of internal power uh, when a lot of basic needs you can't meet for yourself and you're so reliant on other people. Then you can see how someone would naturally gravitate towards having their sense of worth be tied to other people's opinions that fluctuate just because they do uh, when you can't take care of yourself. You get much more sense of a groundedness around a volatile world when you have the ability to take care of yourself. Well, you know, that that's really true. And you know, what's, what's coming to mind for me right now is, mm-hmm. is the funniest example, but we had a situation in which, uh, well, I guess, so, so we're recent homeowners. Oh, cool. And so it's, it's kind of, <laughs> it's, it's kind of doesn't feel so great, I guess, from a self-care perspective when I don't really understand what the heck is going on with so many of the systems with plumbing or electrical or whatever. And, and maybe people feel this way like when they go to the mechanic with their car. 
and they're like, I don't know what's going on. I, I hope you're not lying to me and uh, you know, ripping me off with the, the work that, that needs to happen. And then by, by contrast, we had this experience where our refrigerator temperature was just going up in such that it wasn't even cool anymore. And, and we had to throw some things out. And that was sort of frustrating because it was only like three years old. And so I went through a process of assessing the temperature with this cool temperature laser gun and watching some YouTube videos. (laughs) That sounds like you, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Clearing some stuff out and opening a panel on the freezer and discovering that there was a huge ice clog where the cold airflow would go from the freezer. And so I resolved all of this and then uh, things worked properly. And I just felt awesome. Yeah, (laughs) of course. I am capable of ensuring that my family's food <laughs> is remaining safe and cool. <laughs> yeah, I can totally relate. And, you know, I recently moved and in this new house, I like a lot of little things I didn't like, like it's like light switches and the light bulbs were wrong. So I changed out all the light switches that are all motion sensor lights. I put timers in the bathrooms because I wanted them to have an auto off, you know. And um, so I changed out like you know, a fair amount of electrical work, changed out a chandelier. And, you know, I, I did this like 15 years ago when I first bought a house a long time ago. And it felt really good to like be able to do it myself. And, and sure, I could have hired an electrician, you know, but these are literally 10 minute jobs. And there's something very satisfying for me about doing that. And this is where we kind of cross over from self-esteem into self-confidence, right? So what you just talked about, what I just talked about is we are developing competence in certain areas. And part of that feeling of feeling really good is feeling confidence in our competence and our abilities to do certain things. And sometimes people kind of get self-esteem and confidence mixed up, but this is probably a great segue to switch over to talk more about self-confidence and, and where that comes from. Oh, yes, please. Well, well how about we, we hit that distinction and then we talk about self-confidence. Yeah, so self-esteem really is how you feel about yourself, right? And your worth as a human being. It's very global around the essence of who you are. And confidence tends to be situationally dependent around particular areas of skill, right? So... I am not confident at dancing ballet, okay? Not my thing, never done it, never taken a class. I watched my kids do it when they were little, but I feel very uh, unconfident in my ability to dance ballet. In fact, I feel terrified <laughs> if I had to do that in public. But if, when it comes to you know this case interview thing, the thing I'm known for professionally, I've been doing it for so long, I've done it so many times, I'm very confident in my core area of expertise professionally. And so... Confidence is about uh, a specific domain of activity, whereas self-esteem is about your domain as a human being. So that's kind of the the difference in scope between those two concepts. Okay, that's very clear. And and so when it comes to boosting self-confidence within a domain, how does that go about? First is competence. How good are you at something, objectively? There is what I call outer confidence. What are your behaviors and actions, and how do they signal your comfort level with that particular skill? So an example would be you see someone in a job interview, and they feel they act very nervous, very fidgety. They say, um, and uh, a lot, and they look unconfident. And that prompts an external person to question their competence. So this is the idea of outside or external confidence, how you come across. And then there's internal confidence, which is really how you feel about your skill level in that particular area. So those three, I think, are a more useful way to think about this idea of confidence. Because sometimes you can act confident, but be really incompetent and not know what you're doing. And people figure that out eventually. Uh, You can be really good at what you do but you sort of underperceive your own skill level and you sell yourself short a lot. 
uh, that we might be something called like imposter syndrome, uh, if you're familiar with that term. So it's useful because to have those distinctions because you address each of those particular challenges in those three different areas uh, quite differently. Well, well, yes, I'd love to hear. So if you want to to build that up, how would you recommend making it happen? Now, let me start with what not to do. So one, one thing people often suggest is you know, to come across as more confident, fake it till you make it. You know, you've heard that phrase. And I disagree with that a lot. I like this idea of what I call earned confidence, which means like I put in the work, I feel good about myself and I demonstrate that. So in your case, uh, you know, it's around the refrigerator. In my case, it's around light switches. We put in the work, we learn the skill, we got better at it. We feel really good internally about it, that inner confidence. And then as we talk about what we've done, we express uh, our stories and our experiences in a confident way. And it comes across in a, a sort of a, a standard cycle of when everything works really well. So the first foundation of all this is to really accurately assess your competence level. Like what is your skill level in this area? So with ballet, for example, my skill level is zero, right? My confidence is also zero. It makes no sense for me to try to fake it till I make it, right? Because I'm just going to look like a fool. <laughs> better to admit it. Yeah, these are the American Idol people. <laughs> yeah, better to admit it than to prove it, right, uh, to other people. So if I want to improve my confidence as a ballet dancer, what I really need to do is to work on my competence, work on my skill level, and learn and put in the work to learn the skill and to get good at it, right? And as that improves for someone with good self-esteem, as your competence improves, so does your confidence. They sort of are supposed to go hand in hand when you have a good sense of self-esteem. So for those situations where, again, foundation is there, good sense of self-esteem, you're lacking a skill in an area, you don't feel defensive about it, you can completely admit you don't know, you're willing to learn, you're willing to receive feedback, the, the next step really is just to go get the skill. Mm -hmm. Learn it, read a book, YouTube videos, whatever it is, get the skill, practice the skill, get good, and confidence naturally flows from that because you've earned it, because you've rightfully earned it. So that's sort of like the ideal scenario. Sometimes people have a situation where they have that skill level, but for whatever reason, they are either over or underconfident, particularly externally. And oftentimes that can be, uh, sometimes can be a sign of low self-esteem. So for example, if I'm really good at what I do, but I constantly put myself down, I'm constantly, you know, like, really unsure of myself, yet my track record is 100% correct. I'm like, my objective track record is amazing, but the way I act about that and express that is very, very poor. You know, that can be a, a self-esteem, a signal of a self-esteem problem because maybe I feel like I don't deserve this feeling of confidence that I rightfully have earned, uh, but don't feel a comfortable accepting. And so that becomes a very different way of solving that problem. So when you've earned the right to be confident, but you just can't do it, that becomes more of an issue of looking at your sense of self-esteem, the things we talked about earlier, you know, about self-acceptance, individuation, having good boundaries and self-care, and you kind of go back, you know, back to the foundation, sort of shore up the foundation. The flip side is too true, is also so the flip side is also true, uh, where if you are always overconfident and you, the way you express your level of skill is far greater than your actual skill level, that's called arrogance, right? And you'll see people who are oftentimes you know, perceived as arrogant. In those situations, their sort of cockiness is one that's not earned, right? And kind of, it kind of rubs a lot of people the wrong way. When they're overly confident, they have not earned the right to have that confidence, you know, Michael Phelps says he's the best swimmer of all time. That's like called accurate thinking, right? He's confident. It's not cocky. He's not arrogant. It's just true, 
right? If I say I'm the greatest swimmer in the world, I'm being an arrogant fool because clearly mm-hmm. I'm not, right? And, and so if I'm doing that regularly, uh, always overestimating my own sense of competence in the area, projecting a, a level of confidence that is not earned, that too is a form, oftentimes a form of low self-esteem. And it's a little counterintuitive, uh, but the reason that happens is because people with low self-esteem cannot bear the thought of being thought of as poorly, right? Or being mm. imperfect or having flaws or having to learn something because they haven't developed the skill yet. So they go around pretending and projecting a, a level of confidence that does not warrant it uh, as a way to hide the fact that they're really ashamed of their skill level. And so that too can also be a form of self-esteem problems. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is very helpful in terms of the distinctions and a means of if folks are recognizing themselves in some of this, you can kind of diagnose, okay, well, then what is the intervention that's going to make the impact? It it could be because it's a very different road in terms of, okay, hey, I got to build some skills versus I got to see if I really do buy into this notion that my worth doesn't fluctuate with other people's opinions. Yeah, and it's an entire process. It's, a, it's a, I like the word practice. It's a practice, you know, to stay focused on yourself, to stay grounded, and to, you know, get your sense of worth, you know, from in, from internally. And it's, I think it's important to put to only be in situations that can reinforce that. And I try to avoid situations where that gets eroded over time. Well, and I want to hear, you know, if you do take a hit, like, so you've, you've had many folks that, that you know, who they had big dreams, the, the dream job, the interview didn't go their way, or there's a disappointment or demotion or getting fired. When you take a hit, what's sort of your, your recommended uh, SOS or recovery strategy there? Yeah. So, you know, when you want something, you don't get it. Sort of the, the natural and appropriate and, and, and healthy reaction is the feeling of disappointment, right? I wanted that. I didn't get it. I feel disappointed. Okay? So someone with healthy self-esteem will feel naturally disappointed, right? They're human. That's what they do. What's unhealthy and more indicative of low or no self-esteem is when the, a setback occurs and rather than be disappointed, they go way beyond that to say, I'm a loser. Like I feel worthless at the extreme. It's you know, maybe I should kill myself, right? I uh, would be the extreme version of that because I didn't achieve and therefore I have no value. When I have no value, well, logically, why would you want to continue living if you have no value? And that's kind of the weird mental cognitive distortion that, that sort of uh, spirals around um, the suicidal ideation and whatnot. So the, so the SOS on that really is sort of going back to the basics around self-esteem. And when there is a setback, one of the things you want to do is to have self-acceptance. This goes back to one of the you know, key steps of self-esteem is having self-acceptance. And one thing I didn't mention earlier about self-acceptance is rather than using other people's opinions or achievement as sort of your scorecard and how you feel about yourself, you know, the opposite of that is to have an internal scorecard, if you would, on how you feel about yourself. And in particular, have the internal scorecard not be around achievement, but around values. What are your personal values? What's important to you in life? And so I'll give you an example. So one of my, uh, a couple of my values includes respect, kindness, uh, love, adventure, learning, teaching. These are the things that are important to me. And for me, you know, at the end of my day, like I like, well, did I have a good day? Like, that's the question I ask myself. Did I have a good day this week? I'm sorry, this day, or did I have a good week this week, a good month this month? Did I have a good year? And it's easy to use every society's sort of measuring stick to make that determination. And again, the alternative is to have an internal measuring stick around your own values. So for me, regardless of whether I have a setback or not, I say, well, you know, today was I respectful to myself and to others? Like, well, yeah, I think I was. You know, was I kind to myself and others? Well, yeah, I was. 
You know, did I learn something new today? Oh, yeah, I definitely learned a lot today because I made some mistakes. You know, did I teach something today? Because I'm, I'm big on teaching. It's like, oh, I you know I did teach something to my kids. I turned this failure, you know, into a lesson for my kids. And so they can learn from my mistakes. So I feel good about that. And basically, you kind of go through the list of your own personal values and you figure out, okay, like, did I live by my values today? Separate from outcomes, separate from, uh, you know, what may have happened, positive or negative, did I live by my values? And if I did, it was a good day. And if I didn't, then it's an opportunity to do better tomorrow. So that's a good way to uh, buffer oneself from specific outcomes because you can't always control the outcomes. We can only control what we put into the outcomes, right? So you can control the inputs, can't always control the outputs. And the way to measure the, your value in, uh, from a self-worth standpoint is to compare your inputs relative to your values and see if you lived the way you wanted to and did you put in the effort in the way that you wanted to. And then if you did, you know, be happy with yourself because you did what you were supposed to do in the way you wanted to do it. And what happens, not always in your control. And boy, yeah, I imagine that really is powerful, compounded sort of day after day, week after week with those check-ins in, in terms of really, you know, forming a kind of like an unshakable core in terms of this is, this is who I am and what I'm about. And, and I am, what's more important to me is, is how my check-in goes internally than, you know, whether, you know, you give me this opportunity right now. Yeah. And, and I think the inverse is also, uh, you know, true. If you don't do the internal check-in against your internal scorecard, then you're gonna, the temptation is very, very strong to do it with the external scorecard, right? So like, I didn't get the job offer, like my net worth wasn't as high as my friends and peers. I didn't get the promotion, I got passed over, you know, whatever setback you have in the external world. And it's a, it's a miserable way to, I never lived it. It's a miserable way to live because uh, these are things that aren't in your control. But how you contribute, you know, to what you do and how you show up, how you put in the effort, how you conduct yourself and your own behaviors, that is 100% in your control. And so that's why it's less volatile is because it's in your control and you can control it and it doesn't go well, you can change it. Uh, when it's very achievement or externally driven, you can't control it, which means if you have a bad day, you can't even fix it because it's, it's something somebody else is deciding, not yourself. And so that's a very hard way to have a very calm and peaceful life when you're always dependent on the whims of the external world, which is at times quite whimsical. <laughs> yes. So that's powerful stuff. Victor, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I'll mention one other thing that kind of can sort of get people on the wrong track of uh, around self-esteem, you know, Self-esteem, when done well, comes from parents with good self-esteem. That's <laughs> maybe the better way to say that. So when they're pretty comfortable with who they are, they're very well individuated uh, in the sense that you can disagree with your parents and they'll be okay with that. And they have good boundaries and they have good self-care. They're good parents who have that skill set are going to naturally teach that to their kids. When that process sort of goes awry is how you end up with adults who have other esteem, like myself, you know, for most of my life. So this is concept of what I call traumas that's useful to be aware of. Uh, a trauma can be like a major life event. So like if your parents were killed in a car crash and you were orphaned at five years of age, like this whole process of building self-esteem gets completely, you know, contorted and can get really off the rails, right? That's an example of a major trauma. Another example of trauma is what I call a micro trauma is lots of little things that erode your esteem as it develops, uh, would otherwise normally develop in childhood. And that could be something as simple as, you know, your parents only pay attention to you when you brought back uh, a perfect 4.0 GPA, right? You got all A's and suddenly they were really excited about that. And you got one B and they kind of looked the other way. And it was very clear that you weren't approved of. 
right? When that happens hundreds of times, thousands of times in a little, little way, so those micro traumas, they really add up. And so even if nothing major negative happened in your life going up until maybe age of 20, if a lot of little things just repeat over and over and over again, you can still destroy the normal path of self-esteem through sort of this erosion of what I call micro-traumas. So that's something to realize. If you haven't been around people with a lot of high self-esteem, particularly the people who raised you, there's a very high likelihood you're going to have the same kind of other base esteem that they may have. And people with other esteem tend to inflict micro-traumas on the people around them. And so just something to be aware of to govern your own behaviors towards others and also to be mindful of the uh, behaviors that you're receiving from others to determine whether that's something that you want to be around or not. Yes, thank you. Sure. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote so that you find inspiring? There's several that I like coming out of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I first found that book when I was 17, 16, and it's taken me more decades than I care to count to try to master the seven habits. Uh, I think I've gotten six down. I'm still working on the last one for the last two decades, which is around self-care, ironically. Uh, he calls it renewal or sharpening the saw. Uh, it's really another word for self-care and taking good care of yourself in all, in all aspects. So I like all the seven habits. I think one is begin with the end of mind. You know, what do you want to achieve in your life and kind of work backwards? Uh, another one, which is really great for self-esteem is first seek to understand on the other person before you seek to be understood. And so that goes back to our example of, you know, why do you like veganism versus not? Why do you like chocolate ice cream versus vanilla? And being able to hear other people. You can only do that really well if you have good esteem, where you don't feel threatened by somebody's opinion that might be different than yours, but you can genuinely hear them and understand them. That's a very useful skill. So I love all those seven habits, and I find those um, quite useful as a way to to live life. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Uh, let's see. Well, in my personal life, I, I carry a Leatherman. I have one on my uh, my belt right now. Uh, it's a multifunction tool, kind of like a Swiss Army knife, but better. Oh, literally. A, a collection of physical tools, all right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. And that helps me function around the house much better. Uh, I like that. And then, let's see, on the job, I like Trello, which is a, a workflow management tool. I use it as a workflow management tool. I like that for recording multiple tasks that need to follow a set process. That's really useful from a team management standpoint and working in collaboration with others. And then individually, and it seems really basic, but let me explain it because it, it, it'll seem kind of um, too basic. Um, but my calendar, like I think the calendar is a very, very powerful tool. And there are probably two things I do with it that uh, are probably a little atypical, uh, which I'll mention. Um, so one is, and this reminds me, I've actually not, I'm not doing it currently, <laughs> but I'm going to start because I don't like being a hypocrite. Uh, but for, for many years, I wouldn't set appointments with myself, right? So most of us will set appointments with other people. Uh, I like to set appointments with myself and the appointments I set with myself or for myself are either to do on things I want to work on because they're important, right? Or they are related to self-care, right? So there's certain time slots in the week that I do self-care activities, and I will schedule that in there as a deliberate way of taking care of myself and being productive and effective. And this can be either time to read, uh, it's a time to take an online class. They can be uh, more mundane, like you know, I go to the chiropractor regularly. I had well, yesterday, that was on my calendar. I carved off time to go to do that. And, and that can be very, very useful. The other part around the calendar that I use is I, I really like setting uh, recurring appointments. Uh, I use Google Calendar and they can do this sort of, you know, every Monday, every Thursday at two o'clock kind of a thing. And what I'll do is I will set uh, recurring appointments with um, people that are, I'm close to, my, my close friends. And so I will, the reason I like that is they can make one decision 
to have a recurring phone call with somebody like every Tuesday at two o'clock. And that can oftentimes, in many cases, it's gone on for years, in some cases, decades. And so it is, uh, it takes out a lot of time to connect people uh, with a similar sort of philosophy in life. Uh, and that's very enjoyable uh, without spending, uh, in some cases, more time trying to schedule the phone call than the actual phone call itself, uh, which is very true for myself because I'm quite busy and a lot of my friends who are equally busy. So I, I like that as a productivity tool as well. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Sure. So I, one of the things I wanted to offer for you folks is I have a class around how to improve your self-esteem and I wanted to give everyone an excerpt of that for free as a gift. And people can get that at caseinterview.com slash awesome, uh, sort of as a gift to, to all the people who are awesome here looking to be awesome at their careers. So again, that's caseinterview, that's one word, dot com slash awesome. And that's a uh, free excerpt from my class on how to improve your self-esteem and develop unshakable confidence. Oh, cool. Thank you. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I think you know, I'll leave everyone sort of a, a quote from um, Stephen Covey, from the seven habits of highly effective people. Begin with the end in mind, right? Figure out what you want for your life, your career, and work backwards to figure out a, a process for getting there. Um, it's been very useful for me. I encourage others to do it, and I would challenge everyone to think about that and to work backwards and to work towards it once you figure out that, that process. Beautiful. Well, Victor, thank you so much for, for sharing this good stuff here and for all the ways you've, you've helped me learn and grow. It's been a real treat. Great. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I am worthy simply because I exist. What a powerful belief, and I believe a true one. So I encourage you to reclaim that and to think through the, the wisdom traditions or the agreement of, of world leaders at the United Nations to return to that place and that your worth is not contingent upon you getting to inbox zero, cranking through all the stuff on your to-do list, but that there's fundamental worth and value to you as a human being. And I totally love that baby analogy there. We just had our, our sweet little Mary baptized this weekend, and so we had a lot of great photos in which she's looking adorable. And it's sort of like, okay, well, if babies have that inherent worth and are perfect, why would that go away? Would we get older and now suddenly become contingent upon stuff? Great stuff to return to again and again. Again, those show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep500. Do check out Victor's free guide, Those Five Steps to Building Self-Esteem. That's at caseinterview.com slash awesome. And thank you again for being with us for 500 episodes. I'm excited for the next 500. Hope to catch you over the course of many more years. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.